Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to the Roy Green Show podcast. We're going to begin with the uh, mayor of the city of Toronto, John Tory. The uh, in Toronto, a citywide enforcement blitz of pandemic emergency measures is entering day number two. Mayor Tory um, acknowledges increased public compliance on the critical challenges the pandemic is causing the largest city of this country. Mr. Mayor, good to have you with us. Thank you for taking the time. Oh, it's my pleasure, Roy. Nice to talk to you. Let me ask you, first of all, about the numbers of COVID-19 cases in Toronto. What can you tell us about what's happening there? We know that nationally our numbers are increasing. We're now at 14,426. Well, they've been increasing steadily uh, in Toronto, as unfortunately, tragically, have been the number of deaths. And, uh, you know, I, I saw uh, numbers a week ago, exactly a week ago today, uh, that were heading down the same uh, in the same direction as the numbers Premier Ford quite rightly shared with the people of Ontario on uh, Friday. And uh, they galvanized me into saying to our medical officer of health, and I was preaching to a very uh, receptive audience, that we should at that time move to do everything we could as a city, because cities across the country, of course, don't have the power to do some things as opposed to others, uh, to, to do everything we could to effectively try to lock the city down, and we did. Um, and now some things have followed from Premier Ford, uh, such as uh, restricting further the number of businesses that can be open uh, and other things like that. Um, but at the bottom line is I think all of us are focused on one thing, which is how can you possibly contemplate? And I don't think anybody, like anybody my age, I mean, I wasn't alive during the Second World War, and I don't think there's been anything that has confronted our country and the cities in our country, and certainly not the city of Toronto like this in terms of the potential uh, loss of life. And so, um, you know, we're still seeing those numbers go up. And, of course, the day when we're able to be a bit happier, any of us across the country, is the day when those numbers start to turn down. And, and as they say, then that starts to flatten the curve out. So it hasn't happened here yet, and we're just working to make sure that we uh, we try to make it happen. So this is day two of the bylaw emergency rules enforcement blitz in Toronto. How are you finding that uh, the, the people of Toronto are com- complying uh, with and, and agreeing and going along, not going along with, but but agreeing with what is necessary for them to do? Now, I think going along was a pretty good expression, right? Because, you know, nobody's doing this happily. I didn't order it happily. I passed this bylaw that said, you know, that uh, people can't stand more than uh, six feet closer to each other uh, under these uh, health, health rules set by our health professionals. And I took no joy in that because people like being out there and playing a pickup game of soccer or throwing a frisbee, a frisbee around or whatever. But the bottom line was that we had instances where we had set our playgrounds and, and, and park amenities were closed and people were just ripping the tape down, hopping over the gates and fences, tearing locks off things. And I think that was a bit of early kind of rebellion against all these restrictions being placed on them and that people had never been through this kind of thing before where they hadn't focused on the fact that this is a matter of life or death, literally. 
I mean, the projections we saw at the end of the week and the ones I saw a week ago said that in this city, the biggest in the country, we could see thousands of people die. And, and that's not to say it's going to happen, but, uh, you know, the, the expertise we got that went along with that said if you adopt these measures where you strictly stay away from one another, that you stay home, and that you don't go to the park at all if you can avoid it, and so on, uh, nothing you like to hear in Canadian springtime, but that was going to make a, a market difference to the number of people who died. And so, um, so that's what we were doing. And the compliance, I would say, there's almost none of the sort of uh, tape ripping, lock ripping, gate, you know, crashing stuff going on now. And what we do have over the first two days, I talked to the police chief uh, this afternoon, is uh, a lot of warnings being given to people. Uh, in some cases, they said they were unaware of exactly what the requirements were. Very few tickets actually being given out at a $1,000 fine. I would hope not. I said my happiest day would be if I could get to Monday and over this very nice spring weekend, we'd given out zero tickets because everybody figured it out, got with the program, and started to uh, either stay home or keep the distance from each other. For the people who do want to go outside for a walk or just to get some you know, 10, 15 minutes worth of exercise, what are you telling them? Well, what we're saying to them is, there are many ways, you know, in this big city, and the same, I'm sure, of cities across the country, there are lots of side streets in very nice neighborhoods you've probably never seen before that you could go and have a walk in uh, without encountering other, other people on the sidewalk. So stay away from crowd scenes. I mean, if you absolutely, positively have to go to the park, which we would advise against, uh, then, you know, adopt the social distancing, which is physical distancing, which just says a hockey stick, six feet, two meters, whichever way you want to call it. Stay away from other people. Don't go in groups unless they're people you live with. Um, and, of course, under the rules here in Ontario, uh, you're not allowed to be in more than a group of five anyway, even if you live with them all. So I, I just uh, think if people followed all of that and, and took a walk uh, somewhere where they could hear the birds sing and discover a new neighborhood down a, an uncrowded sidewalk, that's better. Or if you're fortunate enough to have a yard, well, then stay in your own yard. I know it's tough. I mean, there are people who you know, have been cooped up with their kids and the kids aren't going to school and the parents are trying to work from home, uh, both of them, and it's just a kind of a nightmare. But my main message these days, aside from saving lives, Roy is that you will bring this nightmare to an end sooner if you follow these rules than if we just all say, oh, well, that doesn't really apply to me, because in that case, we've been told by our experts, and again, I've tried to be totally honest with the people of Toronto about this, uh, in saying that even if we do all the right things, we're probably into June before this is over, and if we don't do the right things, we're looking at sometime much later in the year, and why do we want to prolong that? Exactly. Uh, well, the, uh, in Britain, uh, one individual who was running a marathon in his backyard that became a viral uh, experience for people to watch all over England. They were watching this guy running back and forth until he did his 26 miles in his backyard. Well, I don't actually know if he's finished yet. I'll have to find out. But it really, you know, people can do, they can do be imaginative and take on issues and take on ways to get uh, get in shape. Mayor Tory, what's going to be the greatest logistical challenge for you and for the city in the weeks ahead? Is maintaining services in the face of municipal workers and perhaps first responders becoming ill, something you're planning for? Well, I think so, because obviously I think the biggest logistical challenge may come to the healthcare system, which is not a municipal responsibility, because they will have a you know, problem potentially, if you believe these projections, where they'll have far more patients than they can deal with, and especially ones needing intensive care. But from the municipal end, yes, uh, we already have a, uh, you know, a level of absenteeism through people being isolated or being ill that is higher than uh, normal. Um, and in some cases, we have an increased demand on service. So, for example, if you look at the shelter system we have here, um, you know, a lot of the people, because they're in close proximity and the way the whole thing works, um, more uh, more likely to be exposed and therefore to have to self-isolate. And so that just puts a challenge on us. But what we're doing is redeploying 
uh, our city workers because there are other city workers who can't do their jobs from home. So we can redeploy them, and, and many of them, thank goodness, are willing to go to places like the shelter system and help us out, um, help with food banks, uh, these kinds of things. So uh, that will be the biggest challenge, though. It's not so much maintaining the services like water and whatnot. It's more the the, the uh, services that require a degree of touch, you know, where you're actually in contact with other human beings, and we've had some absenteeism there that has uh, made it a challenge, and I'm sure that will continue to be so. Uh, a word from you about support for the elderly? Well, they've been our number one priority, elderly and vulnerable populations, and that includes the homeless, because if you think about it, I mean, in elderly, in the case of elderly people, they are most at risk. Therefore, the ones we put the toughest uh, you know, provisions in place to require them to stay at home, even if they're people that are used to going out and doing their own shopping, uh, but if they're over 70, we're saying, you know, you are basically ordered to stay at home. And so we said that carries with it an obligation. And I'll be saying more about this actually tomorrow. Uh, we've got an entire food access uh, strategy that says for every one of those people we've ordered to stay home, we have to have a way of getting food to them. And if it can't be done by their family, then we have to do it. So we're very, very concerned about that. We're very concerned about what's going on in long-term care. And we're trying to take measures and, in fact, order measures uh, such as staff not being able to work in more than one place because then they won't, uh, you know, carry any illness they have back and forth and or carry it from one place to another. So we're doing a lot of things on that. And then the homeless population, we're just really trying to make sure we have extra facilities so that if there are homeless people um, who may be uh, tested and don't know if they have the virus or actually have it, they can be isolated somewhere else because they don't have a home to go to, uh, to, to rest up and get better at home. So we're worried about all of that. And the other constituency you haven't asked about, but I heard you mention you were going to have on the small business, uh, Dan Kelly and so on. Um, I'm speaking up quite a bit on behalf of small business because I think that we still have landlords out there that have not made some accommodation. I know landlords have their own issues with their own mortgages and payments, but um, they're in a better position to say, okay, you don't have to pay your rent in May, on May 1st, and we'll amortize that over the next 18 months. And most small businesses, if they were relieved of the responsibility to pay in May, would probably say, fine, come June or July, I'll start paying that back to you. Uh, but there still are many landlords that aren't doing that and are not focused on the long term, which sort of says, well, if you don't have a tenant because they went broke during the crisis, uh, you'll be having an empty store. And uh, we want those jobs back. We want those businesses back, our favorite restaurants and bars and, and shops. So, you know, we're trying to help them, too, a lot of it through advocacy. And in our own case, as with many cities, uh, deferral of taxes to, to make sure we can leave some money in their pockets. You know, when you talk about this, great too, by the way, Roy. I think speaking for Ontario and and the federal government, they have really been very responsive to a lot of these groups and moving very quickly to put money into people's pockets because that's very much needed. Mr. Kelly's been on this program quite a bit recently, and uh, we spoke last weekend about the numbers of contacts that have been made with the CFIB by small business or from small business owners and uh, the despair that they heard at the CFIB is something within a week that they hadn't heard if they put an entire year's worth of despair emails together wouldn't have amounted to what they saw last week so and we had a 73 year old garage owner in Calgary in tears because he was afraid his business was going down 60% of the people who work in this country work for small business so it's an incredibly important focus Meritoria, yeah, maybe when we come up like that and you know the here the difference of course is very simple from the recession in 2008 which is in this case you have a government ordered for health reasons very valid health reasons, the government ordered complete shutdown, whereas in 2008 you had reduced revenues because business wasn't very good, and there's a hell of a difference. And Big difference. So it imposes a, a huge uh, burden on these people, and I'm trying to do what I can to help to advocate uh, for them because they represent a lot of jobs, as you say. Well, thank you so much for the time. Good talking to you, and you stay, uh, stay safe. 
I'm doing that. I'm. Uh, I had. I, I, yes, I'm doing that. I'm living by myself because my wife's gone off to to a safer place, just uh, you know, away from from me. Because I'm traveling in and out of, to the city hall. So yesterday I spent an hour ironing, which I, <laughs> I hadn't done for a while. But anyway, I had to iron some shirts so I look presentable. But uh, these are the things that we're all doing uh, that are a bit unusual. But yes. anyway, it's a pleasure to talk to you, Roy. All the best. Now, when the pandemic fears ease and the start button is pressed on the national economy of this country, then what? What for Canada's corporations? What will the challenges be for an economy for all purposes uh, currently seems to be stalled out, at least partly? Goldie Hyder is the president and CEO of the Business Council of Canada. He's back with us on this program. Mr. Hyder, thank you very much uh, for the time. And uh, based on my last sentence, how would you describe Canada's economy today? Is it installed mode? Well, there's no question we, you know, the patient has been shocked, um, you know, and we are in um, largely uncharted territory, certainly for any of us in our lifetime to see where we are. Some perhaps overstate the point and suggest it's in a coma. Uh, others, as I said, in, in my case, think it's more in shock. What we need to do is recognize that there is a tomorrow, that there is going to be, as you pointed out in your introduction, a, a recovery. What we have to start doing is planning for that now, even though there are, you know, uh, everybody's focused on the immediate of the crisis, and then we understand that. Well, you know, we need to start thinking about what does life after look like. And I think we have to think about it from more of a reset, uh, Roy, than a restart, because I don't think we can go back to the view that there's, you know, regularly scheduled programming in our economy when uh, this ends, because this is not a hard end. I think uh, we have to look at this as what I call a staircase analogy. There's going to be steps to take to get to the first platform, and then we're going to have to plan the steps to the next platform, and one day we'll reach the top. But it's not like an on and off switch. One day the virus is gone, and the next day the economy is back to normal. How would you describe the health of Canada's larger and largest companies right now? Well, look, uh, there's no question that uh, all businesses of all sizes uh, are experiencing that, that shock. Um, I think that there's a general recognition that the focus should be on, as I've said on your show before, uh, killing the dragon at its head and doing everything we can to manage the health emergency to limit the economic uh, fallout. Uh, we're a month into this now. I, I know that uh, many will want to judge performances and, and, uh, and actions that uh, countries and governments have taken in history books, but I don't think we can afford that luxury. I think we should starting to ask questions now. Uh, you know, how have we been doing in managing the health crisis? How have we been doing in manage the economic response uh, to the economic uh, situation and, and adjust uh, and, and change? Because this virus is not going to go away anytime soon, and I think that there is uh, an opportunity to take stock of, of uh, what we've done well and what we've not done well compared to other countries and, and, uh, and adjust uh, in my mind. And I think what that does is it allows for a smoother and a hastening of an economic recovery uh, than perhaps we're in store for given how this virus is behaving. You and I have spoken on a number of occasions about the responsibilities of government when we have a situation that is problematic, significantly problematic to this country. Uh, is the federal government doing all it should, do you think, uh, concerning the economy and backstopping Canadian business at this particular time? Are they taking the right steps? Well, look, let me say that, um, you know, uh, it's in all of our collective interests to do everything that we can to support uh, our governments at this time. Like, we want our governments to succeed. We frankly, Roy, need them to succeed. 
But that does require an honest conversation about, as I said, taking stock, where are we now a month into this thing? And my concern is, and has been for some time, reflecting the views of many large uh, businesses and the CEOs that I represent, is um, we've been quintessentially Canadian in our response. We have been uh, a little slow, a little cautious, a little uh, little um, jurisdictional respect and all of that. We have levers at our disposal. We should be, I think, looking to recognize that uh, the health advice that we've been receiving over three weeks has been evolving. Uh, you know, one day borders didn't matter. The next day you can't see your neighbor. Uh, you know, one day masks don't matter, now they might matter. So I understand that this is real time for many of them. But look, the virus has already done its, its, its uh, taken its uh, course, if you will, in many other countries. And I think we need to look at what lessons we can learn on health care. On the economic side, it's unfortunate, but uh, A, I think there's too much effort to do it by yourselves. Um, this is a time to bring people together, uh, businesses, uh, labor, uni- labor movements, um, you know, uh, other provincial governments, and say, all hands on deck. Uh, you know, the in this together should be more than a hashtag. It should be a strategy uh, in how we work together to solve these problems, because all of those things, I think, lead to better outcomes, better programs. You know, we've had a few false starts in the announcements that have taken place. I know you've had Dan Kelly on as well from the Canadian Federation of Independent Business. It doesn't need to be this way. We don't need to have governments create new programs in a crisis and certainly doing it on their own. Uh, reach out, talk to people, uh, get some input and uh, bring people together. You have the right to make the decisions at the end of the day, but better decisions get made the more you, you consult uh, and, and uh, collaborate and engage. And I, I think that that is a lesson that's not too late to learn. Uh, adjusting in that spirit, I think, will produce better outcomes for your listeners and for everybody else in the country. And business organizations are working together, so government should as well. Well, we certainly are, because as I said, we are in this together, and no one wants the government to get it right and be more successful uh, in doing the things that they're doing on the healthcare and the economic front than all the rest of us, because we owe it to them for what they're doing. It's uh, not something that they signed up for. It's difficult. It's an un- unprecedented event. But what it's also showing us, uh, Roy, and I've said this before, um, you know, it is exposing the, the Canadian culture to a new reality, and that new reality is life is not going to go back to normal. Uh, and the bottom line is we cannot go back to the old ways. Uh, you know, we need to be uh, a country that's more in partnership, more united, uh, acting with our with our collective interests, more resilient, more ambitious, uh, and unleash that Canadian potential for innovation and creativity and commercialization. Uh, you know, solve the problems and deal with the issues like the environment and the economic reconciliation. I've often said that if you want to honor the lives of those who have died in this tragedy, make life better for those that have lived. And we can do that better together uh, than working against each other or working independently of each other. We're back with Dr. Isaac Bogosh, infectious diseases specialist and scientist at the University of Toronto and Toronto General Hospital, who's so generous with his time with us. Dr. Bogosh, thank you very much again. Thanks for having me back. I have to share something with you. Received an email from Russ. He writes, sent uh, my son the Winston Churchill quote I heard on your show today. If you're going through hell, keep going. He suggests it be modified for today's problem to say, we'll continue to go through hell unless we stay put. Love it. I think it's perfect, right? Spot on. Spot it's perfect. On. I mean, that's great. Well, I, I, we should put that, uh, I don't know, on your webpage or put it on Twitter or something. I bet that'll pick up steam. That's terrific. It's, I will. It's I will put it there. Accurate. Exactly. And as soon as I saw that, first of all, the young man uh, really gets it. And the message is so clear. It's just not, you can't misunderstand that. 
And it's kind of apt the same day that the Queen comes out with her message as well about, you know, we're all in this together and some better days are ahead, but we still need to do what's, uh, what's got to be done. So it's, uh, yeah, kind of, uh, kind of good timing for that as well. Yeah. Um, you're going to be taking phone calls from our listeners, from our callers uh, shortly. Uh, we'll have about 10 minutes for calls for, uh, from, from our listeners for their questions on COVID-19. By the way, the number is 800-263-2428, 1-800-263-2428. You can call now. We will uh, put you on hold, and then at least you'll be reasonably sure. We'll be able to get your call on for Dr. Bogosh if you call now. But it has to be a specific question that relates directly to COVID-19. No theories, no conspiracy stuff, just a question about uh, COVID-19. Two questions that have been sent to me, one by email, Dr. Bogosh, and I'm curious about this as well. What about Lysol being effective in uh, in killing the virus? Yes or no? Yeah, it is. Uh, it is. There was actually a really neat study that looked at, you know, regular household detergents that are, you know, bleach-based or alcohol detergents. And, and yeah, they are effective in, uh, in, in killing the virus. Now, you know, sometimes this question gets micro-dissected and, you know, people say, well, I have a you know, this particular brand and it's a white pad and how do I know when the white pad is finished and it's not going to be effective? And like, honestly, I don't have an answer to that. And I don't think anyone does. I think we also have to sprinkle in a bit of common sense here as well. So, you know, those bleach based and alcohol based uh, commercial cleaning products are, are, are going to be effective in neutralizing this and in uh, cleaning surfaces. And, and that's great. A question from my uh, Alberta colleague, Kevin Usselman, at uh, CHQR QR 77 in Calgary and 630 Chet in Edmonton. What's the uh, more sensible approach if you have to go and get groceries? Would it be uh, one trip for everything where you spend more time in the store on that one trip or several trips for the essentials each time and you're spending less time in the store? Oh, man, I haven't thought of that one. I mean, honestly, I don't think it matters. I really don't. I think the real answer is probably whatever just brings you into less contact with uh, with people. And I think it's just important to be mindful that, you know, no matter what, whenever we're in public and, and you know, touching things that other people might have touched, just to be mindful to not touch our faces and to have good hand hygiene afterwards. So, you know, it's tough, right? And, I, you know, I was at the grocery store the other day and like everyone else, I was. They, they're only letting in a, a certain number of people at a time, so they had us line up outside the store. And you know, obviously, we all live in bubbles, but at least the little bubble that I'm in, everyone was at least two meters apart lining up. Everyone was, you know, not happy lining up, but of course, a completely understand understanding about the situation in the store as well. You know, no one's going down packed aisles, and people were doing exactly what they should have been doing. Um, so, and, and you know, if you are going to the store and you're picking up some items because obviously we, we need to keep going throughout all this and uh you know obviously wash your hands with soap and water or with an alcohol-based uh solution afterwards and, and all will be well you tweeted out uh i think it was earlier today might have been last night about a drug called ivermectin as a possible oh, yeah. assistant battling covid19 what is ivermectin and where does it fit into the puzzle into the puzzle just an interesting little finding and, and ivermectin is a very commonly used medication globally and obviously we're talking about COVID-19 which is a virus interestingly ivermectin is um, used for it's an anti-parasitic agent so it, it, it kills some type of worm infections but of course we know that there's lots of other non-target effects of these drugs and they can do many things so you know they, there was a neat little study that looked at ivermectin it wasn't even in, a, in, in an animal model it was in a cell model where they have cells and it seemed to have some activity against 
COVID-19. Interesting, cool, great. But the key point here is this is not the time to get overly excited about ivermectin. This is not the time to say, oh, here we go. We found a cure. It is not even close to that. It's just, you know, an eyebrow goes up and you say, oh, that's interesting because, you know, what they're looking for when they're looking for drugs to treat it, if you can repurpose existing drugs, that's a great thing. So if you already have a drug that's, you know, approved to use in Canada or the United States, that's safe in pregnancy, that's safe with kidney disease, that's safe in, uh, you know, liver disease, that's tolerated, that's cheap, and that also happens to have effectiveness against the virus, there's a, there's a great opportunity to, to use a drug. So, you know, all it means is that this certainly warrants further investigation at some point not to get overly excited not to do the you know chloroquine and hydroxychloroquine hype that that we saw a few weeks ago but just to say okay you know here's another potential option if these other options we're looking at don't work out and and uh, to keep an open mind and integrate it into you know human studies so we can actually get an answer so this leads then to this question and you've heard this before but it's going to be asked a thousand times. Do we likely have some medications, antivirals, on the medical shelves somewhere which will prove successful or at least interventional in slowing down COVID-19 in individual patients? Yeah, we probably do. But we don't know, as of today, no one can look you in the eye and tell you with a straight face that any particular drug is going to be effective or not effective. We don't have the data yet. There have been small studies that are looking at some of these drugs, but you cannot extrapolate from those studies and say, this is going to work with any degree of confidence. And really to actually do it, you need to conduct rigorous trials that, you know, some of my colleagues might kill me for saying this, but like, really, they're not that hard to do in the sense that you just need the resources and organization to do it. And there's, you know, and, and like these have sprung up everywhere. So these studies are ongoing uh, and there's great coordination. It's not like one hospital is doing one study. There's a ton of cooperation in hospitals across Canada doing these studies. There's also global studies as well that Canada's participating in. So, you know, these are, you're rapidly able to recruit a large number of people, collect information in a meaningful way such that you're able to answer the question that you just posed. Does this work against COVID-19? Will this help treat people infected with COVID-19? And even asking the question, will this prevent a COVID-19 infection in someone who's exposed but not yet infected. And these studies, like I said, these studies are ongoing. I hope we have early preliminary data from some of them. Maybe not conclusive data, but at least early preliminary data in the next, in the, hopefully in the next six to eight weeks, because these studies are enrolling patients already. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Uh, Marg in Edmonton, how are you, Marg? Please go ahead with your question. Uh, good afternoon. I was wondering if it could be possible that um, if people handling our foods, like in restaurants or drive throughs or um, the raw foods in uh, putting out in grocery stores, if um, they wore masks or people uh, doing fountain drinks, if they wore gloves, if that could 
maybe have a possible help in, in uh, cutting transmission. Okay, I think we understand the question. Great question, uh, Dr. Bogosh, what about that? So, yes, the real question is, you know, if people who are uh, out and about are wearing masks and wearing gloves, could this halt the spread of transmission? It's interesting. I mean, it's a bit of a hot-button issue. It's rather a polarizing issue as well. And on the one hand, you hear uh, a lot of uh, vigorous people in this very strong pro-mask crowd think that, you know, the masks may may provide a lot of benefit. Then you also hear some, uh, you know, sadly, some some people in public health are rather dismissive of this. Uh, and like anything else, whenever you see uh, some polar extremes, the truth probably lies somewhere in the middle. So, you know, we're not talking about if a mask is going to protect you from getting this infection. The question I'm going to rephrase is, if everyone wears a mask, will we slow the transmission of this infection? And, you know, the, the answer to that is, is, is a solid maybe. Um, and, you know, people think, well, what's the harm? We can all put on masks and, and that's that. But, you know, of course, we need masks for, uh, for health care providers. There's a, a huge shortage of masks right now. So most masks should be used for health care providers. So the next question is, all right, should we use these cloth masks? You know, in the U.S., just went went that direction, saying, you know, if you want, you can think about wearing a cloth mask. We're not going to mandate it. Um, and you know, of course, there's major pros and cons with with that approach as well. So, you know, sadly, there's no. You know, I know people want a, a yes and no answer, and I know what people want things to be black and white. But sadly, this is a nuanced answer that uh, doesn't satisfy people, and it doesn't satisfy a, a very vigorous pro-mask group, and it doesn't satisfy public health. But you know what? That's the answer. And, and if you really want to find the truth and look at the data, the data is a solid maybe we're not sure. So, you know, people, my, my approach is, listen, wear a mask if you feel this is going to be helpful to you. Wear a mask if you feel like this is going to be helpful to your family. Don't shame people for wearing masks. But on the other hand, if you are wearing a mask, for whatever reason, to protect yourself or to protect others, we have to be very aware that the heavy lifting is going to be done by physical distancing measures and hand hygiene, and the masks probably aren't going to provide a lot of incremental benefit. All right. Frank is in Ancaster, Ontario. Frank, your question for Dr. Bogosh. It is known whether the coronavirus migrates in, in, in a hub, hovers in midair uh, and, and, and is an it, invisible that it is uh, that is that unknown as to whether it migrates or it hovers like a mosquito ball would well, that's a great question so you know there has been a lot of uh, studies looking at at this and, and in addition to that there's also been a lot of um, work just in real world experience and a lot of what we can do is we can tell in real world experience that based on how we protect healthcare providers we can almost extrapolate a little bit on how how this is transmitted. And one of the fears was that this is able to float around in the air for long, long, long periods of time uh, and and infect people. But it doesn't appear that that's the case. It doesn't appear that that's the case. There was a study out of Nebraska that maybe had a shred of evidence demonstrating that, but it wasn't very conclusive. And in fact, when we look at healthcare providers that are wearing certain types of masks and certain types of uh, eye protection and gowns and gloves, you know, the, the way we, the healthcare providers are protecting themselves are essentially assuming that this virus doesn't hang around in the air for very long. It just drops quickly uh, to the surfaces around infected people, not hovering in the air, staying in the air for only a very short period of time because it's mostly, I've got to be careful with my words, it's mostly in large droplets. And, you know, when we're working in healthcare systems that are not stretched beyond capacity, that are not 
sort of personal protective equipment and people protect themselves for these large droplets that fall to the surface and protect themselves by wearing gowns and, 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 and gloves and have good hand hygiene, not a lot of healthcare providers will get infected. Obviously, that's not the case when you're working in an overstretched system. But uh, so, so it's, that's a very long-winded answer to say it's, I've got to be careful with my words again, it's unlikely that this virus is going to be hanging out in the air for a long period of time infecting other people. It's unlikely. Okay, and the uh, point is as well that PPE is still in short supply. Oh, yeah. I mean, this is a huge problem uh, in Canada and elsewhere in the world. And you know, we've heard of uh, our federal government and our provincial governments finding different uh, supply chains to get this and, and hopefully even uh, enlisting the help of local industry to, to produce it so we can ensure the supply chain and ensure the proper supply of this. So that's, that's a major issue that's really being addressed now. Laura is in Calgary calling in on the Roy Green Show. Laura, what's the question for Dr. Bogosh? Dr. Bogosh, for your valued time, I have a three-part question amid the PPE shortage, specifically the N95 masks. Are these masks that the Canadian federal government is procuring, A, from China, B, are they the KN95 type, and are they authorized uh, and legal um, regulated to release to our health care providers? All right, Laura, thank you very much. Go ahead, Dr. Bogart. Yeah, that's a great question. I don't know enough about this to give you a good answer because I'm just learning about this myself. I don't know where these masks are being procured. I know that traditional channels have been disrupted. I know some of them are from China, but I know there's multiple places in the world that make them. But the, the, the supply chains are disrupted, so I'm not entirely sure where we're going to be supplying them. I don't know if they're going to be the traditional N95 or KN95 masks. And based on the products we're getting, I don't know uh, what the uh, level of protection for those masks and the, the, uh, the um, science is behind the KN95 mask. So I have to learn a bit more about this. This is still new to me, and I have to look up that data. So pardon me for not having... Uh, the best answer to this, I, uh, but uh, like everyone else, I'm 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 learning throughout this throughout this whole ordeal as well. I have literally 30 seconds, so let me ask you this very quickly: Why are some people asymptomatic, and if you're not showing symptoms, does that mean if you were to be infected with COVID-19, that it's not really impacting your health, or is it damaging your system without you knowing it? Great question. So many people that actually, we hear about this asymptomatic all the time. It's interesting, when you scratch the surface, the vast majority of those people actually end up going, go on to develop symptoms. Uh, that's data from China and also from Iceland, where the big uh, discussion of asymptomatic people has taken place. Still, there probably are some people that are asymptomatic. Uh, they will likely just have a very mild course of illness that they may or may not even be aware of. Okay. And recover and, uh, and life goes on for them. A hundred years ago, the world was emerging from H1N1, a.k.a. the Spanish flu pandemic, which claimed anywhere from 50 to 100 million lives globally. So how did Canadians react to this deadly pandemic of a hundred years ago? There was public resistance, as there is now, to public health demands. And there was a great variation in health and death rates globally and in Canada, and we're going to speak about that with our uh, friend now, Dr. Anne Herring, who is an anthropologist and also historian on the uh, the pandemic of 1918 and 1920 
In fact, uh, her students at McMaster University, retired anthropology professor, uh, her students at McMaster University wrote a book about their ex- the experience in Hamilton with uh, H1N1. Dr. Herring, thank you very much for coming on the program. Last time we talked, we spoke about really the overview of uh, of the pandemic. We're going to a little get more closely uh, involved with Canada's reaction and Canadians' reaction 100 years ago. But at this time, in the spring of uh, 1920, where was the world as far as the pandemic's concerned? Um, hello, Roy, and I think you want to ask me about the spring of 1918. Is that right? Yeah. Now, did it, was it 1918 exclusively, or did it meander beyond 1918? Well, it did. Um, I think I mentioned in our first conversation that there were three waves. Right. The mild wave in the spring of 1918, a severe wave in the fall of uh, 1918, and then another mild wave in the winter of 1919. And uh, the uh, virus bounced around uh, from community to community, most people agree, in, until at least 1920, perhaps beyond. So at this time in, uh, in 1920, so 100 years ago in April 1920, yeah. it was... It had pretty much run its most violent course. People were digging themselves out, as it were, metaphorically from it. Yes, and um, actually, uh, there hasn't been a whole lot of work done on the the post-pandemic situation. Right. Um, My students, you mentioned their their book on on the fall pandemic. Well, I had another group of students who did a a book on the winter pandemic, and they were really disappointed because... (laughs) Um, there was a, a, a very different approach. Uh, people had become used to the idea of influenza, and uh, it wasn't uh, as uh, as uh, desperately hitting families the way it had in the in the fall. So, really, by the winter of 1919, life had kind of got back to to normal. Even though it was still present, it wasn't doing as much damage as it had already done. That's right. So 55,000 deaths in in Canada. And when we had a conversation, you and I, the other day, you pointed out that it killed many younger Canadians. Yes. Well, that was one of, that's one of the very interesting features of the 1918 pandemic, was that in a normal flu, uh, it's the very young and the very old who are especially susceptible. In 1918 and 19, uh, the the age pattern of death was very different. And so it was people, young people, sort of in the prime of life. And a lot of research that's been done, at least here and in the United States and so on, suggests that the average age at which flu deaths peaked was age 28. So that's a very young, obviously there were deaths up to the age of 28 and deaths beyond. Right. But uh, that was a, a a feature that people are still trying to understand today. It's not well understood why that particular uh, pattern existed. Now, you said something to me that I found very interesting, and I want to ask you about that. And and I imagine it applies to what we're experiencing now. You said even though the pandemic is global, it really is a series of local epidemics. Yes, um, because, of course, whenever you have uh, an epidemic, you have a, a kind of collision between uh, a biological thing, in this case a virus, and the social circumstances in which it lands. So depending on how people are, are organized, how much contact they have together, 
what the quality of the health care is, can they stay nourished, how many people live together in a single household, and so on. All those things have an effect on how the epidemic plays out in the, in the local setting. So a lot of the discussion is at very high levels of analysis, like national mortality rates or provincial or you know, even city mortality rates. But um, you really need to look at neighborhoods, uh, if, if at all possible, to, to get a sense of what was happening. And it wouldn't be the same everywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, you know there's been resistance to public health demands that people really uh, stay two meters apart. I mean, that's largely dissipated now. Yeah. But there was a lot of resistance, and people said, no, I have my freedoms, I have my rights, you can't tell me what to do. There was a similar attitude, was there not, in in 1918 in this country? Well, again, it depended on where you were, but there were a, a lot. There was a lot of agitation about the uh, fact that businesses had to close early, um, that the uh, transportation systems were uh, very crowded because people were trying to do everything in a, in a small amount of time. Um, the churches and so on were were upset that um, they were sort of being lumped in with uh, theaters and pool halls and so on, places where people would congregate in large numbers, and uh, being told that they they couldn't do that anymore. So yes, there was a lot of um, resistance to that. Uh, Some, in the case of the churches, here's an example from Hamilton, um, some of the churches started holding their uh, services outdoors. So that was a way of kind of, in their minds, reducing the uh, the crowding um mm-hmm. in another case um a, a clergyman was was brought to trial and fined at the time a large amount twenty dollars for holding church services so um yeah there was there was resistance and of course parents were uh upset that their kids were as they felt sort of in in greater danger running around the neighborhood than they would have been had they been in school. Interesting how, how the thinking was different and how they, because of the knowledge base was different. You pointed out to us in our last conversation in 1918, they didn't know what a virus was. They couldn't see it under a microscope. Today, we know what a virus is. We can see it. We can just go online. And if you said to somebody 100 years ago, go online, they'd be looking at you like, what, washing line? But I mean, everything's changed so much. Uh, well, I, and, I think there's another another factor that, that, that works in here, and that is that people were accustomed to epidemics. That's interesting. They were more they were more regular in occurrence. Well, of course, you know, uh, we yeah. were developing yeah, makes sense. Uh, biomedical knowledge that allowed vaccines to be developed and so on. Uh, but at the time, uh, tuberculosis was a terrible killer, and people were afraid but accustomed to tuberculosis. There were epidemics of whooping cough, diphtheria, mm-hmm. scarlet mm-hmm. fever. So th- <laughs> we live in an era where people think that infectious disease is a thing of the past. Yes, we do. And to a great extent, that has been the case because of the development of biomedical knowledge and so on. But at the so same it's a three-step three process now. You go to the doctor, you go to the pharmacy, you take your pills for seven days, and you're fine. Yeah. That's the thinking. Yeah. Obviously, it's all changed, but that's the that's thinking. Right. That's right. So, um, yes, people uh, were saying... Um, you know, epidemics, we, we, do, we do have them. 
Right. And uh, there was a, quite a disruption of, of life that was making people anxious. But was, uh, when there was so much loss of life that was directly traceable to, they thought it was a flu, right? They, they, did, they did think that, correct? Yes, they, they, they based, on the, based on the symptoms. Okay. So, but there was a significant loss of life. Was it? Yes. I mean, it had to be greater than, than the epidemics they had faced previously. But their attitude going in was, we've seen this before. Was that it? Well, um, you know, I feel I'm oversimplifying and I'm not liking this one bit. But they had had influenza epidemics before. And when it first started in many of the cities, it was of a mild form and then became, right. you know, more virulent. So initially they thought this is not going to be as bad as we're hearing about. It's happening elsewhere. But um, epidemics per se were things that they were, they were used to having. Plus, there was all of the horrible deaths that were going on in the uh, First World War. Of course. So some of this was sort of being backgrounded against the fact that, that soldiers were dying of other things yeah. and also the flu um, overseas. You said so to I'm me, and we have... To say that people were blasé about it, but it didn't have the kind of shock value that I think um, we, we react with today. Right. Right. Understood. Back with Dr. Anne Herring, anthropologist, retired anthropologist from McMaster University, historian on the 1918 pandemic. Dr. Herring, there's no way I'm trying to simplify things and, and put you into a position where we're trying to make it uh, Cole's notes or the, or the idiot's guide to to the pandemic of 1918. It's a very serious business, and it's really about finding out how uh, how our really our ancestors were living at that time. And one of the things you talked to me about, I think we might have mentioned it in January. You might have mentioned it in our initial conversation. Was social inequality was an underlying factor as to what happened to people? Mm-hmm. Could you um, speak to that, yes. please? Uh, there, there's a kind of sense that people have that there's one story about the 1918 influenza and that it played out the same way every time in every place. And as we've already talked about it, local circumstances had a great deal to do with what actually happened. Um, But uh, it wasn't until really the early 2000s that uh, some very sophisticated work started to be done. This was done in Oslo to take a look at whether or not um, people who were better off, in this case it was parishes, uh, did better in the, in the pandemic than people who lived in parishes that were poorer. This is work by a fellow named Sven-Erik Mamelund, and uh, he prompted a, a whole lot of research into whether or not um, the 1918 flu was dubbed democratic. In other words, everybody was equally likely to die from it or not. And, of course, he found for Oslo that, that the people who lived in the poorer districts were uh, harder hit by it. Uh, it doesn't mean that they were more likely to get the flu, but once having it, they were more likely to die from it. And, um, of course, this makes all kinds of sense, and, and we know that from uh, research on, on so many uh, circumstances today, but people who are living in poverty are generally poorly nourished, they don't have adequate housing, you know, all those things, they have underlying conditions, all those things that make you more likely to have a bad time when you get any infectious disease. And so as more research has been done, this seems to be playing out for uh, the 1918 flu as well. 
what uh, what's your take? Let me just read you something that was uh, was just texted to me from a listener in British Columbia, and I I'd love to be able to <laughs> mention his name, but uh, the uh, screen is just showing me what he sent, which is really a public notice, uh, Doctor Herring, from November seventh, nineteen eighteen, Corporation of the City of Kelowna. Public notice. Notice is hereby given that in order to prevent the spread of Spanish influenza, all schools, public and private, churches, theaters, moving picture halls, pool rooms, and other places of amusement and lodge meetings are to be closed until further notice. All public gatherings, um, I can't read the rest of it, uh, are prohibited. And it's D.W. Sutherland, Mayor, Kelowna, British Columbia, 19th October, 1918. Mm-hmm. Well, um, directives like that were being sent out across the country. Right. I just find it interesting that they've survived because they tell us a lot about what was being experienced then and and, and what we're, we're looking at. Now, what's your t- we have about a minute and a half. What is your takeaway as an anthropologist about that 1918 pandemic? Well, I, I think the biggest takeaway for me uh, is that most people survived, that there's been a heavy emphasis on how many people died. But in fact, the average mortality was about two and a half percent. So if you flip that over, what does that tell you about the proportion that survived? Right. You know, about 98 percent. Yeah. So and sorry, go that's ahead. It's important to know that most people recovered within a week. Um, now, of course, uh, sadly, uh, a number of people went on to, to get very severe cases and, and, and to die. So I think it's important for people to not always cite the huge mortality rate, but to mention the fact that most people did survive and, and were able to carry on. So for me, that's an important thing. Um, another important thing to know is that uh, a lot of people pitched in to volunteer, neighbors making food and leaving it on the porch, uh, people in outlying districts taking care of animals, farm animals, or even having to put them down when, when the family was sick, people on trap lines uh, taking wood to other trap lines. So there were all kinds of opportunities for Canadians to to help each other out, and they took those opportunities. I hope we do it this time. And it, I think it, well, it's obviously starting to happen because there are efforts, really significant efforts being made to help uh, the elderly and to help people who may be infirm and not able to, be, to get out. Dr. Herring, thank you so much. You've spent a lot of time with us on the on the pandemic of 1918, and we'll know a lot more because of you. Thank you. Appreciate it thank so much. Thank you so much. All the best. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, Subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.